Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project. I'm Jay Harrington. Tom Nixon is with me. Hi, Tom. Good to be back, Jay. How are you? Doing pretty well, thanks. Beautiful Good. day here. Enjoying yeah. the weather. I feel like we've we've turned the corner. I think we said that about two months ago, but <laughs> yeah, and pretty soon we're going to be switching our closets back to our winter clothes. Yeah, exactly. It won't take long up here. Yeah. So in any event, um, all right, I've got an overrated, underrated to throw your way. So all right. are me. you ready? Okay. So I I read this, or I I came up with this one because I just finished reading a book. Uh, it's Andy Weir's new book called Project Hail Mary. He, I don't know if you've read his work before. I'm not a sci-fi guy, but his books, uh, he's a sci-fi writer and, and I read everything he writes. Um, first book I read of his was The Martian, which if you didn't read it, you may have seen the movie with starring Matt Damon, yep. uh, or maybe not, but uh, it's uh, both the book and the movie are actually really good, which is not always that common. Yeah. Um, but this long-winded, <laughs> uh, <laughs> way of getting to my question um, is, you know, I think in, you know, when we're, a lot of people are focused on business and self-improvement and optimization and all these things, uh, you know, we, we tend to, and I, and I put myself in this category, tend to read a lot of nonfiction. Um, and I, you know, getting back to reading what was a really great fiction book, um, it made me think, I wanted to get your impression on this, which is whether uh, fiction is underrated or overrated, particularly as it relates to things like becoming a thought leader or helping you in, in ways of, in your life that you might not expect fiction to play a role? Hmm, that is a great question. I'm trying to figure out how to answer it without shamelessly plugging my own work of fiction. Yeah. So <laughs> I might just do that anyway. Sure. Um, but it, so I, and the reason I say that is because I think there's an interesting way, if you're an author of fiction, to maybe have a different perspective. I think it's underrated, first of all. I think reading books in general is underrated. Um, I think we need to get back to sometimes uh, a more active consumption of content and not just staring at a screen or having something read to you or, you know, this podcast is, is, you know, obviously some passive content consumption, but there's something about reading a book and it goes down to, this isn't the question that necessarily you're asking, but I immerse myself in the smell of the pages, right? Like physically with the book, touching the paper, um, but then certainly mentally kind of escaping to this other world, whether it's Mars or whatever it is. And so I think if you're an avid reader of nonfiction, you should sprinkle in some fiction because it's a totally different experience and a totally different outcome. And I think that escapism is something that probably we all need, you know, from time to time. Now here comes the shameless plug. But as somebody who has written fiction, to me, it's the same as why you write nonfiction, Jay. You say, I don't know how I think about things sometimes until I, until I write them. And for me, when I wrote my book, I it was processing the untimely death of one of my best friends. And I couldn't figure out, he was a gifted writer. And all I could think about was, is the world will never, never get to read his writing. And that's such a shame. And then I started thinking about my own mortality and I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And I've never written a book. I mean, I have, but it's never been published. So anyways, I think the, if you're an avid nonfiction writer, I think you should explore fiction writing as well. So, uh, Maybe that's a challenge to you, Jake, because I know you've, you're a prolific nonfiction writer, but have you ever thought about writing a fiction book? I, I do have a, 
probably not surprising to you. I have a Google Doc full of ideas. Uh, cool. that it just it's just daunting to me. Although you seeing you crank out your book, The Long Lost, available at Amazon.com. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it did inspire me, and I know that's been a few years, and I haven't gotten to it yet. But uh, there's there's some mental block. There's some fear I have to get over. Um, I, I just feel like I don't necessarily have the craft. One of the reasons I'm trying to read more fiction because it is a bucket list thing that maybe yeah. I'll get someday, but I do feel like you need to consume lots of fiction in order to understand how to write it. Um, and in fact, I, in reading this book, I know, and we'll get to our main topic in a second, but I think this is a point that's applicable for those who are, are writing thought leadership content. Um, something I learned in writing, uh, or sorry, in reading Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, I recognized like what makes great fiction books so remarkable, which is just the the page turning capacity that that writers employ to to get you through like a you know a four or five hundred page book, mm-hmm. and it's it's all about and I'm not I didn't come up with this concept I know I've read it before but it really came it was driven home to me in reading this book which is the the notion of creating and then releasing tension um, you know throughout the book it's all about you know these situations that the protagonists. It's, it's the impossible scenario they can't get out of and then they do. And it's just this it's just steady drumbeat of these problems and solutions that they, um, that they uh, kind of go through throughout the whole story. And I think you want to do that in your nonfiction writing as well, even writing an article or LinkedIn. Mm. It's like, how do, you, how do you create tension and then release it? And oftentimes that's like, all right, how do you define the problem? And then how do you provide the solution? And it's really all about you know how you capture and engage people. I think through any form of writing is that that kind of method of create tension, release tension over and over. And um, and I don't know. I, I I've been thinking a lot about that lately, and I'm trying to um, always think about that in the writing that I'm doing. I, I feel like the 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 problem with much uh, thought leadership writing is that it creates lots of tension, but it never resolves it. Right. Interesting. It's all about, um, you know, providing information, but leaving the reader with like, all right, well, what do I do with this information? And if you can, if you can actually provide them a solution uh, to the problem, then they're going to be much more engaged in what you have to say. Absolutely. And um, as we sort of, we are kind of segueing into our topic to today for for today, but. Let me just one quick aside, just going back to what you said, I wholeheartedly agree. My favorite uh, fiction author, not my favorite, but one of them is Harlan Coben. You ever read Harlan Coben? Mm -mm. So he manages to create and release tension every chapter. Mm -hmm. Every chapter ends with a cliffhanger and every ensuing chapter resolves it. How do you do that for, you know, in his case, 50 chapters? He managed to do it and he manages to do it over and over and over again. And I could tell, so I modeled my book sort of after that is that I, I wanted to create a page turner. It's like, but not having the confidence that I've ever done this before, this is how we're segueing into our topic for today, is I had to take a chance. And I had to, like you said, watch what other people are doing, read what others are doing and emulate it. And I will tell you the single most often response or often stated response from anyone who's read my book, they always say, I love how you did it in such short chapters. Like they thank me for giving them short chapters. And so I think that's a takeaway too for thought leadership, nonfiction writing is that you can't drone on forever. More and more, you need to get to the point quickly. So now that's even a greater challenge, right? You have to create and release tension and you have to do it quicker than ever before. But those are some good segues. And um, I do highly recommend Harlan Colvin if uh, you're looking for one of those types of books. It might help you in your own pursuit of fiction writing. Thank you. I'll check it out. Cool. 
So, um, all right. So yeah, as you said, uh, segue into our topic today, which is something that resonates a lot with me. And this actually came as a result of a uh, listener suggestion of a topic that uh, they wanted us to cover. And it's, you know, the, the, uh, the common problem or challenge for, um, you know, someone who's newer to their career in the in the legal profession. I, I know there's always this debate. I, I sometimes have a tendency to default to calling people young lawyers, but they're not necessarily young. Mm. Many, I, you know, in terms of age or experience, I know many lawyers get into the profession having had accomplished careers in other fields. So I hesitate. So I, I let's call them newer lawyers now, I, okay. I think is the proper way to put it. So newer lawyers feeling uh, hesitant about their ability to uh, create and share thought leadership content. You know, so the, the, the notion of who really cares what I have to say, you know, I don't have a ton of experience on, under my belt. Do I have to just sit around and wait until I gain that experience before I can start participating in the conversation? Um, so that's what we want to talk a little bit about today. Tom, any other additional framing on the topic before we dive into it? Yeah, well, I think what we need to unpack maybe is is what you just said, is that imposter syndrome or is it like a legitimate concern that needs to be addressed? And I think it's probably a little bit of both. So uh, that's why I thought we were segueing when it, we come to you not having the confidence to write fiction. I know what an awesome writer you are. I know how much you've written. You're going to you know, nail it. You're going to hit it out of the park. But for whatever reason, there's this limiting belief because you haven't been there and demonstrated a track record that no one's going to believe you. No one's, you're not going to be a believable fiction writer. Well, I don't know if anyone believed me either, but maybe they still don't, but it's done. What's done is done. So um, what do you think as somebody who was at one point a newer lawyer, do you think this is founded in imposter syndrome and it's just a limiting belief or is there a legitimate concern that you need to address? Because I think we have answers for both of those scenarios. Yeah, I, I think, like you said, it's a little bit of both. Um I think imposter syndrome is is definitely real for most people, and I think you know, in some part, for for good reason, in the sense that I don't I don't think in feeling like an imposter is is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a recognition that you have more to learn, that you know you you're in a progression, you have a growth mindset, you understand that you know maybe what you will know later is not what you know now and and so it's it's valid to feel a little bit like an imposter it's you you're you've come from an environment law school that does not teach you how to be an effective lawyer it's just not part of the apparently uh for whatever reason the legal uh, education community doesn't feel like it's necessary to prepare lawyers in many cases for the practical skills they need and in some cases, the practical knowledge they need to effectively do the job. So, so feeling there's nothing wrong with feeling like an imposter. And I think that you should be taking that into account, um, you know, as you're setting out to create content, because you, you don't want to be someone who has a year of experience under the belt, trying to act like there's someone who has 10 or 15 years of experience that has real risks and, and potential implications <laughs> for not only the individual, but, but the law firm they work at. So, um, you know, a healthy dose of uh, feeling like an imposter is, is okay, as long as you understand that, you know, you don't want that to stop you from, um, you know, sharing some ideas that are appropriate for your level of experience at all, which gets to the second part of, um, I think, the issue, which is, uh, you know, what is, how do, how do we, or how does someone get over the hump and start to take steps in a positive direction without kind of getting out over their skis? Yeah, I think part of it, 
I wonder if you agree. I think part of it is the weight of this moniker, thought leader. So mm-hmm. it sounds like really important. I mean, that you're a leader, right? You have to be a pioneer. And I think then people look at themselves in the mirror and whether it's imposter syndrome or legitimate, it's like, well, I'm not that, I, you know, I'm not Seth Godin and I'm not, you know, some of these famous names um, that people turn to for quote unquote thought leadership. So right there, they sort of disqualify themselves as having the expertise. And I think if you just for the purpose of this episode and maybe maybe even for the purpose of your own career, just put the, th- the term aside for one second. Now, funny for us to say, we have a podcast called The Thought Leadership Project, and we're just <laughs> launching the Thought Leader Collaborative. So obviously, we are big into this term ourselves, but it's not to intimidate people, right? It's to invite people into what is a tried and true practice for, especially in the year 2021, getting content out there. So if you give your permission to not be regarded as a thought leader, but to engage in thought leadership content, then I think that's the first step. And I, you know, we have some ideas on how to do that, some actual tactical takeaways, like you said, Jay, that we're going to share with people so that they feel like there was some release in this podcast episode. But I think just give yourself permission to whatever you want to call it, right? It doesn't have to be a thought leader. And if you start there, I think you're already over the hump. Yeah. And, and keep this in mind too. You are a thought leader in, 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 some, in some things, right? I mean, everyone is an expert in something or multiple things. And you are probably more of an expert in your, you know, kind of uh, discrete set of issues that that you have unique knowledge about more than the most experienced lawyer in your law firm, right? It, it might not be on the substantive uh, areas of law, but it might be, uh, you certainly are more expert in what it takes to be a successful law student right now. Cause you just, that was just your lived experience or what it takes to become an effective first year associate or, you know, those perspectives you have based on your level of experience right now that you're living through that you have expertise on. So it's not about, again, um, being a thought leader in, you know, the, the nuances of some statute that governs, you know, the, the practice area that you're working in. It's about, you know, the issues that you are living and you have um, a tremendous firsthand knowledge about that may be the subject of your thought leadership. So don't, you know, don't think of thought leadership as just one thing. And it's that you need to be the foremost expert on some complex legal topic. It's many things you can be a thought leader about. Or that you need to be the thought leader, like you put it, the foremost expert on everything. You don't have mm-hmm. to be, right? And so the, another term that you use a lot, which I, I really like, is this curse of knowledge, which you don't realize you're an expert at something typically because it comes so easy to you. Mm-hmm. So if you've just mastered everything that needs to be mastered and you graduated top of your class in law school, you may think of yourself as a thought leader, but you might not, but you certainly are, is the point, right? To your point, so in at least that discrete area, what it takes to successfully graduate from law school, you're an expert as much as anybody else. You just did it, right? So mm-hmm. and you can't then just disqualify that as, well, nobody would care about that. Who cares about that? Everyone graduates from law school. So I think we're going to help people get over some of those inhibitions as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start diving in. What would be a logical starting point, Tom, if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of, of a person who, you know, is, is new to the practice of law, understands the, the relevance and importance of like, building one's personal brand and being active and visible in the, in the marketplace of ideas. Um, I guess what's one maybe entry point into thinking about, all right, how do I dip my toe into the water and start, if not, creating and publishing content, like what is one step towards doing that? 
Well, I think it all, I think early on, it's all about finding your voice. And we have a couple of recommendations for that. But the, the thing that anybody can do, literally anybody, is you can ask a question, right? So maybe there's an observation you've made, or maybe there's something you're legitimately curious about. One of the most vi- quote unquote viral posts that I've ever seen this entire year was from a former guest of ours, Callie Schwartz. It all she did was observe that, wow, Clubhouse is getting hot. I wonder if brands are going to use this um, sort of resurgence of audio as a preferred content platform to maybe reinvigorate the jingle. She just wondered it, right? Mm-hmm. That post had thousands and thousands of comments and likes and reactions. And so is Callie a thought leader? Absolutely. Did she just pose a simple question? Right. She did. And so she's being regarded as a thought leader. She is a thought leader, but she's also proof that you don't have to necessarily, if you don't feel like you have all the answers, then at least ask the appropriate questions. Yeah. Right. I mean, so that's, that's, that's a great sort of first principle, which is, you know, thought a, a, a big part of leadership in any capacity is, is asking the right questions, asking good thought-provoking questions. And so that certainly applies to uh, becoming a thought leader as well. Um, so asking questions, I think, is, is key, um, not only to, uh, not only to you know, start a conversation, but also to get the feedback from people about you know, issues that you can then think about writing about later, right? It's like you're, you're crowdsourcing ideas for your own content creation efforts later through you know, the reactions you get from other people. So I think that's a really good um, way to think about this. And, and it, there's a lot less pressure to asking a question, I think in many instances, as there is in like putting your own answer to a question out into the public domain. Yeah, and it naturally, I think, progresses to the next, we'll maybe call it a phase. So the fir- first phase is really easy because there's no pressure to ask questions, right? There's no such thing as a dumb question. Remember, you learned that in the second grade, but you move on to making or sorry, to posing questions to potentially the next step is making observations to your point. So you ask the question of the universe, the universe gave you all sorts of responses in the form of comments on LinkedIn say, and now you're just digesting and you're saying, well, this was interesting. I noticed a trend here among certain type of people, the response was this. And amongst another type of person, the response was this. And there's some categorical maybe assumptions we can make. And now you could just create an entire piece just on observations from the responses you got to questions. And when I say, and it could be just not that discrete question, just observations in general. So just as it's easy to ask a question, it's pretty simple to make interesting observations without necessarily trying to position yourself as the expert who has the solution to the observation or whatever it is, but just you're making interesting observations. And then that starts to create new conversations as well. Yep. And I think closely related to that is this, this whole notion, and maybe that it's, it's drawing a distinction here um, that relates to making observations from questions you've asked, but also um, being a, a, you know, a content curator versus being a content creator, where, whereas you know, it, there's more pressure oftentimes that people feel associated with you know, coming up with what they believe needs to be a wholly original idea and writing content about it, as opposed to finding other content, whether that be those responses to the questions you asked or some other um, form of content that someone else has created. And again, you making an observation based on that. So again, it's not, it's not all about you. It's about you adding on your opinion or observation about something else someone's already sparked a conversation about. Right. Or it's funny you mentioned that because what I'm reading these days 
is the content generated by Brian Clark, who off the air, I've told you about how I've just been drinking his Kool-Aid. And his big thing right now is he is advocating that you maybe preferably, but certainly as an option, become a content curator and not only curating sort of the crowdsourcing that you're doing, but maybe there's one or two or three experts that you rely on and that you hold in high regard in the industry. That person maybe are, is already validated as a thought leader and you can curate their expertise in their content, share it with your network, provide maybe again, analysis or questions or additional thoughts, but that takes the pressure off because it's not like, you know, you take this, this attitude, well, if you don't believe me, because I'm a newer attorney, you certainly will believe a Brian Clark. See, I just did it, right? I did exactly what I'm talking about. Brian Clark is who I'm, I'm crowdsourcing here. And I do it to you all the time, Jay. I take a post of yours and I'm and I think you've already got some established bona fides in the legal community. And I can pretend I'm just as smart as you simply by sharing your content. So I think that's another, I, I totally agree, content curation. And then then you really start to see not only what people are responding to, but you start to really having a legitimate opinion because you're consuming so much thought leadership content, you're sharing it with your network. And now you're going to start having the confidence that, you know what, I would have said a little bit differently than Brian in this example. I maybe would have said this instead. And now you're off and now you're into the realm of creating your own expertise and sharing your own expertise and creating thought leadership. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see that all the time. There are people who effectively really just feed off of other people's posts on LinkedIn, for example, and tag them and mention, oh, this post was inspired by whoever. And, and again, it just furthers the conversation. It's an effective way to, to generate ideas for content. Um, and then I think that leads us into, you know, kind of a, a, another step, which is maybe getting a little bit deeper into and closer to really putting your own ideas front and center, um, at least generating really, you know, interesting and relevant ideas that relate to, you know, what your practice is and what you're trying to do with your career, which is once you start, you know, having these conversations, asking these questions, maybe starting to create a little bit of content yourself. Um, I, I like to talk to my clients about, you know, you getting your subconscious mind working on this problem of like, all right, what do I, what do I have to say? What's interesting? Um, what's relevant? And the best way to do that, in in my view, is to be conscious of, you know, the the day to day work experiences that you're having and the questions you're getting from clients. So as you're going through your day, you know, billing your 10 hours, uh, working as a lawyer, maybe that's being conservative these days, uh, <laughs> 10 to 12, or maybe even 14 hours, because I know everyone's so busy right now, uh, you know, really starting to pay attention to what's happening um, within the, your day to day experience and start cataloging ideas that occur to you throughout the day. So that might be, you know, the interesting research project that you're working on. That's on a very narrow issue. You know, young lawyers or new lawyers uh, oftentimes will be assigned these projects where it's like, all right, there's this really tricky, nuanced issue that doesn't have a clear answer and you've got to go do a deep dive research project on it. Well, you know, that, that could be an interesting subject for um, some thought leadership content or, you know, you're getting a question from a client that you don't necessarily know the answer to. And maybe it's one or two, maybe three clients ask the same question. Those are all really strong signals to understand that that might be an issue worth building upon in some thought leadership content. So I think another step in the process is starting to really pay attention to what's happening in your work, because that information, those signals will be 
strong indicators of what you should be focused on in terms of content creation. Yep, absolutely. And then you begin to connect the dots, right? If you're immersing yourself in a research project like that, you're getting asked the same thing over and over from different clients or partners in the firm. You start connecting the dots and you start realizing, wow, this is an important, not only is it complex and it was tough to research, but it's it's valuable information. And I should maybe now become the gatekeeper to that information and start sharing it with my network. Because yes, can somebody else do the same research and eventually get to the same conclusion that you did? Potentially. But what people are looking for nowadays are shortcuts. They want to be handed the solution. They don't want to be, well, here's how to find the solution. Anyone can find a solution if they want to do enough digging. But the real value in your place as a thought leader is to take something that was once complex, simplify it, and then repackage it for the people who are also having that same issue. So it'll take you a long time to maybe figure it out the first time, but it'll take you hardly any time at all to repackage it for a new audience. And I think that's when you start turning the corner to something that you like to call, Jay, the fly, the thought leadership flywheel. Maybe you're not there yet, but you're starting to turn that flywheel. And maybe you can just rem- remind people what that is. I know it's tough to describe without a visual, but you, <laughs> yeah. you've done it before. Yeah, no, it's basically the idea that you know you have some level of expertise on some issues. When you, you write or otherwise create content about that expertise that you have, um, you're able to go deeper on those issues in, in a way that deepens your expertise. Uh, then by sharing that thought leadership content, that creates awareness and trust of you and your brand, which ultimately, you know, again, this may happen later in your career if you're a new lawyer, but ultimately will lead to new client engagements. The work you do for those clients will, again, deepen your expertise, allowing you to create more interesting and thoughtful thought leadership content, create more awareness and trust, more client engagements, and so on. So it's this positive cycle of um, reinforcing your expertise, sharing that expertise through your content, and deepening it through the work you're doing for clients that continues to position you as the expert in your field. Um, And Tom, I I just want to circle back to one thing, because I think there's this bridge, and I, this was something I observed when I was practicing law, and, 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 was involved in. And I think it it's a it's a helpful bridge for newer lawyers who are looking to create and share content, which is you know, there there is an opportunity for say a, a first or second year associate to generate lots of interesting ideas for content, um, do a lot of the legwork in pulling that information together, say writing an article. But then there is that, you know, there's that last step, which is how do I really make this um, useful for an audience? How do I contextualize these issues in a way that will be relevant and interesting to those in a particular industry, for example? Um, You know, how do I round out what we were talking about before, not just make it all information, but actually provide some solution for people so that it's true thought leadership, that's sort of the definition of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And in order to do that, I think, that's where you want to be thinking about collaborating in the creation of content with others with more experience in your firm. It's a really great opportunity to develop and deepen your relationships within the firm. If you as a newer lawyer can bring ideas for content to those who are maybe more senior than you, do much of the legwork yourself, and then have them sort of polish the piece and provide some analysis and insight to it. Um, and then you can you can see what they did. You'll learn from that experience. And you'll you know just be a good, like I said, relationship building tool and help further you in your career by doing so. So there's this, you can, you know, 
rather than waiting for you to feel like you're at the point where you you have the requisite expertise to really share that deep analysis and provide those solutions through content, hook up with someone else who already has that and work collaboratively on those projects. I think there's a lot of benefits to it. Absolutely. You might even want to reach into the industry that you're serving and mm-hmm. find an expert on the front lines who already has the, you know, the established voice as a thought leader, or at least an expert. And now you're relying on that person's expertise because he or she is actually in the audience. They're dealing with the issue. So it might be, you know, if your client is in aerospace, finding someone who works in aerospace, an engineer, and ask to collaborate with them. And again, yeah. that takes all the pressure off you, right? Yep, definitely. Um, yeah, I like that a lot. So, uh, all right, well, should we uh, kind of wrap this up with some takeaways, Tom? Yeah, I just wanted to, like, if, if you're following along and you heard what we were saying, and this sounds like you, imagine yourself like six to nine months into this process, which isn't very long, and you're starting to see that flywheel turn and turn and turn and turn, you will automatically have confidence that comes from now experience of doing everything we said, which was asking the right questions, making observations, uh, connecting dots, providing some actionable takeaway for an audience, you will have the confidence then to say, you know what, this thought leadership thing isn't really that difficult. And now I can, maybe I am ready to wear that moniker. And you will then naturally see your writing sort of shift from this observation making and question begging to analysis and insights and solving problems. And you're now that flywheel is really turning on its own and you won't feel that need to collaborate. You still might want to for strategic reasons, but you, you you will have that confidence that you're telling us today by virtue of maybe suggesting this topic to us that can't be faked and it can't be bought, but it can be earned over time. But you have to commit to the first steps in the process so that at the end of this road, that flywheel is turning. So I guarantee you, if you do that, you will eventually, you will embrace the idea that you are a thought leader. Yeah, no, that's great. And and don't forget, you know, I think it, as we started this off, we've talked about, you know, everyone's an expert in something. And if you think of your career as a ladder, you know, you you can you want to be thinking about you know, creating content for those like a rung or two behind you. So again, if you're a first year lawyer, that might be other law students. And there's there are lawyers, um, new lawyers who are on LinkedIn creating great content for law students and have tens of thousands of followers as a result of that process. And I think, you know, everyone can can model themselves after um, some of that behavior. And, you know, that's a great way to develop your voice too, right? As a writer and as a communicator, Mm -hmm. um, just getting started with the process of sharing content, seeing and understanding what resonates with people. Um, Don't wait until you feel like you're comfortable because that may, may or may not ever come. I don't, I don't care what level of experience you're at. It's always somewhat uncomfortable in order to, by putting yourself out there, there's always some uncertainty around that. Um, So in any event, I think. Well, before we wrap, just you gave me the opportunity and no, I'm not going to plug the long lost one more time, but to your point, I believe there's safety in numbers. So you get out there and you start networking with LinkedIn. This is the whole concept behind why we're creating the thought leader collaborative, which it may be a good place to start thoughtleadercollaborative.com because we are building a network of like-minded lawyers and other service professionals who all want to learn this together and help each other learn it together. So it's one part training, it's one part community. Uh, It's definitely a good place for you to kind of 
get your feet wet and start to dip your toe into thought leadership without having the pressure of being on the main stage. So I had to plug that, Jay, and that is going to be opening now to the public around August 1st, is it not? That's right. Yep. So definitely uh, visit thoughtleadercollaborative.com. Sign up for our email list. You'll be updated with just helpful information along the way, as well as when that, uh, when the lab is opening. Um, So we definitely encourage you to go there. Um, And, and yeah, I think, you know, as a starting point, go out on, go on LinkedIn, leave some comments on other people's posts, Um, start writing down some ideas that you are bumping up against in the day-to-day work that you're doing and find someone to collaborate with. And I think that'll help you get started in this process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you need, you know, between now and August 1st, you need some summer reading. Well, Jay, the long lost is there on Amazon. I did it after all. Sorry. All right. Well, we'll, nice work. Nice plug, Tom. I like it. I won't let people go. Uh, All right. Well, we'll see everyone next week on another episode of the Thought Leadership Project. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.